0: Hebrews, all the time, anywhere. Hebrews. Our Ladies Ministry will be having prayer, thankfully. Prayer hour after service this morning in the war room. That doesn't mean they fight, it just means that they pray. They do battle in prayer. Our theme is today, the Ladies' theme is how God is our counselor. Interesting. Read Psalm 73. We hope you can join us for prayer and snacks, and there is also a box on the tape table for prayer requests, information table for prayer requests, for when we pray the last Sunday of the month, so all requests are confidential. That's a very important time. Let's try to, I speak for myself, we'll try to honor and be a little quiet down toward the war room door today. I want Before I start the message today, I want to speak a word on behalf of my wife and true yoke fellow, Pam. I know some of you have been concerned the past fall and winter, she hasn't been able to attend as often at services. She gets all the messages and she gets them sometimes right on time, and right very quickly. But she uh, sends her love and it's been sort of a semi-private thing, but she has uh, pretty severe rheumatoid arthritis and... Um, lupus as well as some autoimmune cross type things. So it's one of the reasons why I'm extraordinarily cautious, not for myself, but I don't want to be a carrier because her immunity is quite low. And uh, the fatigue lately has been pretty severe. We're hoping, praying and asking you to pray that it's one of those extended flare ups and not the devastating results of that thing. So, But she wanted, and I wanted, to tell you that, that she loves you all and misses you and just sometimes just can't make the journey, and sometimes I won't let her because it's pretty rough some days. So thank you for your understanding, for your love, and she loves all of you very much, believe me. So today, Hebrews, we see Jesus. This is increment six already. And all the others, all the other five are in print and on the website. So I hope you'll take advantage of it. But I have great, great confidence in the Lord that if this generation doesn't, the next one will, especially the written parts. I Just got a feeling that's going to be okay, next generation. So today, to lagu tes paraklesios. My pronunciation of Greek is horrible, but to lagu. Tes Paraklesios is the title. The letter to the Hebrews was not written, and the sermon within it, there is a sermon within it, was not preached to make a specific argument for preferred doctrines or pet beliefs of Christians at the present time. It doesn't make an argument for an imminent rapture. It isn't making an argument for eternal security of the believer in Jesus. Nor was it written to prove that a Christian can lose his salvation. It isn't designed to be an argument for universal salvation. If it were, it didn't really make a very good case for it. On the other hand, it never makes a case for an everlasting hell as none of the Bible does. It wasn't written to prove the deity of Christ or to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. Hebrews was written to urge the readers to go outside the camp with their writer and to bear the reproach of Christ rather than remaining inside a system and in that case, even inside a city that had come under divine judgment and had been slated for demolition. Hebrews to the first readers was a summons issued by God for Christians to enter into a clear and public identification with Christ And with his once and for all sacrifice, despite the obvious insults and reproaches that such a commitment would entail. The system of sacrifices that was instituted by Moses and practiced by the sons and descendants of Aaron was feasible for a time. In fact, it was commanded But at the time of the writing of Hebrews, that system and that priesthood had been nullified. God had spoken definitively in his son. Finally in his son. Decisively and conclusively in his son. In Jesus as a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. His once and for all sacrifice and his once for all purification for sins rendered the old order obsolete. Consequently, to continue in the old order is not only to continue in a vacated ritual, it's actually to continue in sin. It is to continue in unbelief it is to go in the opposite direction of drawing near to God it is in fact to draw away from the living God with an evil heart of unbelief what was once commanded is now condemned Hebrews was written to persuade a specific group of people maybe even a house church to do a particular thing and to do it immediately and totally and to continue on to completion with it. We're presented here with a picture not only of a system but also of a city under a divine anathema. We hear the echo of the voice from heaven in Revelation saying Come out from her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sinfulness or receive any of her plagues. And the readers are reminded, for here we have no abiding city. Instead, we seek one that is to come. What does abide, what does continue is faith, hope, and love. These three abide while we have no abiding, settling place here. Hebrews places a decided and determined emphasis on faith. If you don't believe it, Read Hebrews 11. And that faith is the substance of the city which is to come. It's the dwelling of what Lonergan called a cosmopolis in our mind. It's letting Jerusalem of the future come into our mind and be our livingness. Where we've been called to a community of fidelity. A communion of divine and human persons in the love of God the Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the communion of the Holy Spirit. Hebrews places a determined emphasis on faith. Faith is the Jerusalem from above, the heavenly cosmopolis in the heart and mind and soul. It is the new Jerusalem come into your mind. It's the inner assurance of the hope for a city, the temple of which is the enthroned eternal majesty himself and the lamb and whose light is the lamb of God. Now we've established already that we, like the initial readers of this letter, are Hebrews in the sense that we are sons of Eber, Eber, the children of Abraham. We are in Abraham's seed. In fact, we are Abraham's seed, Christ. We are travelers through this world. Wayfarers and pilgrims on the way to the city whose architect and builder is God, is Christ. In a very broad sense, the present evil age itself has come under the divine judgment of the cross. The current aeon, as it's called, is the city that does not endure. It is not the city of our settled residence, this world, this age. This age and its way of doing and of being and of living, and of thinking, and of deciding, has been judged. And it's slated for total demolition on a date known only to God. The camp which we are summoned to exit, we've been served with papers. And the papers are the writings of the New Testament. Specifically, now, for us, the letter to the Hebrews. We've been served with papers. The letter to the Hebrews is, the pre, in the, is calling us out of the present age. An eon, which Paul the Apostle, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, unapologetically called An evil age. You say, I don't see it. Well, Jesus said, if you being evil can give good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father? It's evil in comparison to the age to come. Even as fathers who give good gifts to their children are evil in comparison to the heavenly father. We all are until we're conformed into the image of his son. This evil age is an age from which Christ is our deliverer. Paul does not speak of a deliverance from hell, but from a deliverance from this present evil age. Having died for our sins, he delivers us from this present evil age. Paul issued a similar summons as Hebrews when he wrote to the saints in Rome these words, which I've paraphrased and expanded. So by the ever-renewing compassions of God, I urge you, siblings, to present your bodies to God as a living sacrifice set apart and acceptable to God. This is your primary reasonable act of priestly worship. Do not be conformed to this age. Instead, be transformed by the making new of your way of thinking, resulting in the affirmation of the good and the well-pleasing will of God that has been the completely attained will of God in Jesus Christ and him crucified. This appeal, which I've paraphrased here and expanded, is intended to make those who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, an instantiation or an example of God's intention to bring all things under the gracious headship of Christ through instauration, the practical interior effect of their co-crucifixion with Jesus. Romans does not call the saints to leave the material city of their residence and go outside it as we're not called to go outside our physical residence Romans instead calls the saints of Rome to go outside of conformity to the interior mentality and intentionality that drives the present age an eon which Paul elsewhere describes as evanescent transient even now, John says, is passing away before our eyes. An age that pays back evil for evil rather than overcoming evil with good. Of the many commentaries I'm examining, and I'm doing it with all my heart and eating, living, breathing these words and these commentaries, Harold Attridge, A-T-T-R-I-D-G-E, is among the pioneer commentators on Hebrews, and he wrote these words. Like most other New Testament writers, Hebrews suggests that the salvation to be fully realized eschatologically is to some degree available in the present. The powers of the age to come may already be tasted, Hebrews 6, 5. And the time of correction, it's called deorthosis in Hebrews, a rough synonym for the age to come, has already begun. Hebrews 9, 9 and 10. The unshakable kingdom does not commence with the coming judgment, but is something that Christ's followers have already received. Twelve twenty eight above all by his death christ has already performed the decisive eschatological act that's profound he has obtained a redemption 912 perfected his followers 1014 and opened for them a means of access to god 1019 by effectively cleansing their conscience of sin 9.14. The eschatological focal point in Hebrews is clearly in the past at the death and exaltation of Christ. More concisely, he writes on page 27 of his commentary, and listen carefully to this, this floored me. He said, Christ is the leader and perfecter of faith. 12.2. Because he has inaugurated this covenant. This new and living way. Into the sanctuary where God dwells. He has. By God's will in his own example. Made possible. A life. In touch. With what is most. True. And real. As a young man. My greatest thirst was not. For something in this world, I never knew what my greatest heart's desire was. It was to be put in touch with something real, something true. And when I heard the words, reality itself is Jesus, it was the life-transforming word that still transforms me to this day. So when I read that he's made possible a life in touch with with. What is most true and real? Man, did that ring true with me. Jesus is real and true. I can't think of a better description, in fact, of what we call the higher integration of human living in Christ Jesus and by the Holy Spirit than a life in touch with what is most true and real. For to me... Jesus is the truth, and he is the reality, the reality of God and the reality of true humanity in one person. To be in fellowship with him is to be in community with God. It is to be in a community of fidelity a communion of both divine and human persons. It's not always experience. That's why it's called a taste. And when we're not experiencing and tasting it, we're pushing toward that experience. This communion of divine and human persons is, in Hebrews' words, it's to have come to Mount Zion and not Mount Sinai. It is to have come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to a countless thousands of angels in a joyous celebration, to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of those whom he has justified having been made perfect. And that means perfected in Jesus who was perfected through suffering. To Jesus we have come. To Jesus, it says, who also having been perfected through suffering, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks of better things than the blood of Abel. This is where we've come. With this idea of Jesus, with the spirits of justified human beings in the heavens, in the heavenly Jerusalem. We have this, we see him crowned with glory and honor, says Hebrews. But we see him with the spirits of justified human beings in the heavenly Jerusalem. He himself was justified in his resurrection. And... We see him in an earlier depiction as the perfecter of faith in Hebrews 12 1 3. At the pinnacle of a passage that speaks of the faith of the presbyteroi, they're called elders, P R E S B U T E R O I, presbyteroi. That's a word used in Revelation 5 for the t- Twenty-four elders, as they're called, and Jesus stands in the midst of them, like one of them, but not like one of them. He's the lamb standing, having been slaughtered. He stands between the living creatures, the angelic beings, the everlasting living creatures, and the throne of God. And he sees him face to face. And so, I have a reminiscence when I read Hebrews eleven one to forty, and then on to twelve one to three. I had a reminiscence of the slaughtered lamb among the presbyteroi. They're called the same thing in Hebrews eleven two and in Revelation five. Jesus is with the spirits of justified people in Hebrews twelve nineteen to fourteen. He's among the presbyteroi or the elders of Hebrews eleven one to forty men and women of past dispensations or ages, and entirely distinct, on the other hand, from them as their exemplar and leader and ours, just as the slaughtered lamb is among, but also distinct from the presbyteroi, the 24 elders in the heavenly scene in Revelation 5. I think there's intended a unification of these two passages in Revelation 5 and Hebrews 11, 1 through 12, 3. In both of these scenes, the focus is so much upon Jesus that the presbyteroi fade behind him. Instead of seeing Moses or Elijah, Sarah or Deborah, Abel, or Enoch, or Noah, Samson, or Jephthah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, or the unnamed Maccabean martyrs, or the anonymous 24 presbyteroi of Revelation who throw their crowns at his nail-scarred feet. Instead, we see Jesus. We're urged to look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If he endured the cross, cannot we endure a word of exhortation? He despised the shame, which means when he balanced it out with doing the will of his father and with the glory and the joy that would follow, the shame really meant nothing to him. He despised the shame. And who has been exalted to God's right hand, to the right hand of the majesty on high. We see Jesus, who for a little while, echoing Psalm 8, for a little while took a position lower than angels, so that by God's grace he could experience death, sin's wages. For everybody. For everybody. Yes, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And in seeing him, we see the destiny of humanity that God intends. For he intends to crown us with glory and honor. We see him precisely because of the suffering of death that he endured for everyone. Turning our eyes upon Jesus, looking with unveiled face into his face, all others, heroes though they may be, become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. To paraphrase, Fanny Crosby's classic hymn, a woman who did not have physical sight, who wrote, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Our heart's treasure is in heaven, in the heavenly Jerusalem. It's not here. As the psalmist wrote, I'm always with you, Lord. You grasped my right hand. You guided me with your counsel and received me with glory. For what have I in heaven but you? And what have I desired upon the earth beside you? What is there we can have on earth if it's not the true and the real? What is there desired about it? Who but Jesus? Now, though Hebrews was not written to prove the deity of Christ or to teach the doctrine of the Trinity, and people who like to use the passages in the Bible as proof text for their doctrine, that's all they get is their favorite doctrines, and they neglect the exhortation that's there, which is the whole purpose of it being written. though it wasn't written to prove the deity of Christ or to teach the doctrine of the Trinity. The deity of Christ is very much assumed right from the introduction. For there, the son in whom God has spoken with eschatological finality is introduced as the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his reality. Likewise, the Trinity, or we call it the triunity of God, is evident, with God the Father saying to Jesus, and there's a dialogue between the Father and the Son, especially in the early part of Hebrews. The Father says to the Son, to Jesus, you are my son. And he says to his son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The writer speaks of Jesus, the son of God, calls him that explicitly and states that he is a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And where Christ is portrayed as the Paschal Lamb, the Lamb of Sacrifice, he is said to have offered himself to God without blemish through the eternal spirit. There's the triune God. However, instead of an imminent rapture, which people would love it to say or teach, the writer speaks of a universal shaking and a removal of everything that's not unshakable. Leaving only the kingdom of God, which we have received. Instead of saying, you're eternally secure because you know, once saved, always saved. The writer says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? little different tone instead of saying, don't be concerned. Everybody's going to get saved eventually. He says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart like the wilderness generation, but rather demonstrate that we are the house that Christ built by holding on to our courage and confidence until the end. The writer is not concerned to comfort his readers. Listen very carefully. He is not concerned to comfort his readers with doctrines, which, though true, when isolated from the full counsel of God, lull Christians into lethargy. He's concerned with the reality of a merciful and faithful high priest who runs to our aid in our weakness, in our temptations and tests. A God who is a very present help in trouble. Very present help in trouble. Let your moderation be known to all people. The Lord is near the Lord is near in a passage that contains a profoundly pertinent and primal promise. The writer says your way of life should be free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for. He himself has said, I will by no means and for no reason abandon you. Nor will I ever leave you behind. Therefore, we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I won't be afraid. What can a human being do to me? The Lord, who is my helper, is none other than Jesus, who is our merciful and faithful high priest. For since he himself was tested, he is able to come to help those who are being tested. We can never say to him, you don't understand. So if you're looking to build a case for your favorite doctrine, Hebrews ain't the place to go. It's not necessarily the best place to look for proofs of your pet doctrine. But if you wish to see Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, you're in just exactly the right place. Don't lose heart at this exhortation, as it's called. It's really a co-exhortation. The author rarely says, you do this. He says, let's do this. And that's my spirit. Let's do this. If the Lord permits, let's go on to completion. Now you say, but I thought I was already complete. Well, you're completing Christ. But he says, let's go on to completion. There's a practical completion and a practical experience of salvation. You haven't fully experienced it yet even as you haven't shed blood yet in your resistance of sin as hebrews 12:4 says as jesus did as many martyrs did don't lose heart when you're exhorted corrected reproved pulled up short and called on the carpet See, there's a problem when there's never any rebuke, reproof, or correction in biblical teaching. That's a problem. But there's also a problem of getting discouraged when we're rebuked, corrected, or reproved. My son and daughter, don't make light of the Lord's discipline, and don't grow weary under his reproof. For whom the Lord loves, he trains. Chastising every son and daughter whom he, under his reproof, chastising every son and daughter whom he favorably receives into that community of fidelity. And how happy is the person whom the Lord reproves. So do not reject the discipline of the Almighty. And still again, how happy is the man whom you correct, Lord, and whom you teach from the scriptures. And one more time, I reprove and discipline everyone I love. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Now, I've said that Hebrews is no place to seek proof texts for your favorite doctrines. On the other hand, Bet you're glad I said on the other hand. The prominent theme in Hebrews is the perfecting of Jesus, God's son, through suffering. It's found in 2.10. It's the perfecting of God's son, Jesus, through suffering. God saw it fitting and consistent with his character to perfect his son, Jesus, through suffering what does that mean there are many theories about what that means and I have a theory and it rests on an insight and I'm going to let that insight come to us gradually as I think the Lord has given me instruction to do I say I think that's what he's done on the other hand therefore the prominent theme of the perfecting of Jesus God's son through suffering I'll just give you this much it brings into focus the universally saving significance of Jesus in a startling and surprising way. One that is rarely, if ever, taught by universalists. And it's a better way of looking at it. And so, we will not be abandoning the assurance of the all-saving significance of Jesus Christ, nor will we be forsaking the universally redemptive impact of his death and resurrection. We've come to it through blood, sweat, and tears. We've come to it through many dangers, toils, and snares. We've come to it against opposition, against slander, Against resistance. We're not going to abandon it. Come hell or high water. Not by a long shot. It's just that this epistle carries with it the power for an urgently needed, relentlessly forward momentum. For God's people. Paul the apostle knew more than anything else. In his face to face encounter with Jesus of Nazareth. Just how saving. His significance was. How broad. How deep. How wide. How high. How in depth. But he said this one thing I do. One. Thing. I do. And forgetting the things that lie behind, I press on toward the mark of the prize of the always onward, ever upward summons of God in Christ Jesus. I haven't yet attained. Why do you think you have if Paul didn't when he wrote Philippians deep into his career? Not that I have yet attained. What he sought was a life that perfectly resembled the life in bodily resurrection. You're not going to attain it in this life, but you're pressing on. He sought the kind of life that will be experienced in the city of God to come, in the country that Abraham sought, in the heavenly Jerusalem. We seek that life to come into our lives. We seek that life to be lived. We seek the manifestation of Jesus' very life in us. We haven't yet attained. We're still angry at times, resentful, sometimes even tempted to be embittered. We still want, we still desire things that are not within the will of God. Yes, we repent from these things and we leave them behind a lot more easily than we did once. And we're not obsessed. We still sin. We still express anger. We still want to pay back evil for evil. Some days we wish there was a hell just so that certain people we hate will go there and we'd be happy to see them burn there. Christians really, really want there to be a hell. Not for them. Of course. But for the guy that ripped you off, the guy that T-boned you, the woman that left you at the altar, well, there better be a hell and she better be frying in it, you know. (laughs) Well... And surely the terrorists have to bake in the lake forever and ever, of course, you know. So we have our days, we have our moments, and we might even use words that may not be considered entirely sanctified in a church-like atmosphere. But we press on, you see. We have a forward momentum. Recently I was talking to our beloved Elaine, who's out in California, Elaine Dowdy. Chuck and Elaine used to sit here all the time, and we always said, even when they moved back to California, I said, we still got a seat at the table for you. And she's since lost Chuck. And I talked to her on Chuck's birthday this past his past few weeks ago. And she she had like two words of knowledge. One of them she said, I always remember there was always a going forward and she's staying right up to date with all the messages and she might just appear someday in this congregation for a few days. She said, there's always been a forward motion all the years that she recalls sitting here. And then she said, I know there's much adversity in the congregation. She mentioned a few of your names and, a few people that can't be here because of illness and they're going through difficulties and couples going through the adversity of illness. And she said, that's a sign of growth of spiritual growth, all that adversity. Those two things I said, wow, those are both profound words of the Lord. We've always had in the Hebrews is just, I decided to teach it after that conversation and not because of that, but because I've been going this way for quite a while in my mind. Hebrews is the best place in the Bible to be, to impart forward momentum. There's no place like it. There's no other book like it. That's why I'm teaching it. The epistle, and I'm going to close soon. It carries with it the power for an urgently needed, relentlessly forward momentum. There are people that believe in eternal security of the individual believer. There are people that believe wholeheartedly in the universal salvation of all mankind and of all creation. But they've isolated these doctrines from the exhortation, the reproof, the correction, the forward momentum that is so urgent. And it's lulled them into a kind of a lethargy and a kind of a laziness, a kind of a sluggishness. And they're like, well, you see, all that's true. So what's there left? And that's not only sad, it's tragic. You have no idea what the results of your forward momentum will be in the future ages and forever. You have no idea what you're sowing to the spirit and receiving the word and being attentive to the word and listening to a pastor teacher whom God has qualified and who is a sinner among you, but who preaches and teaches the word and to adhere to the word and listen to the voice of the spirit day by day. You have no idea how many people out that affects 35 out 55 out people that you never even saw or would never even meet that may even be living in future generations still unborn people that your decision to sow to the spirit instead of the flesh has saved restored built up elevated out of terrible depression all kind you have no idea nor do you have any idea of what it's like to blow off consistent instruction in the word, to sow to the flesh. The movie Murder on the Orient Express by Agatha Christie, the book turned into a movie, is brilliant because it shows that the act of one person affects so many lives. As you know, the victim, the murder, I won't tell you the ending, but it the lesson was profound. The epistle was written to impart a forward momentum for the listeners, always onward, to a completion that they have not yet attained. And an ever upward momentum in order to a in answer to a heavenly summons. You are partakers of a holy and heavenly calling, you know. Three one. The epistle was written by a pastor or if not by a pastor, by someone with a pastor's heart, with a shepherd's heart. Prophets had that sometimes, teaching priests. It was clearly inspired by the great shepherd of the sheep himself. The purpose of the pastor is, after all, to impart forward momentum to his hearers spiritual momentum. And he does this through both negative and positive incentives. And let's not forget that Hebrews is the, in the pastor's own words, in his own words, toward the end of the epistle, he says, he calls that whole epistle, quote, this word of exhortation, this brief word of exhortation, and it's two lagu tes That's what it is, a word of exhortation, the impartation of positive and negative incentive for a forward momentum to go to Christ outside the camp, go to him. It's not going outside the camp. It's going to Christ who's outside the camp, bearing his reproach. He asks his readers to accept it as valid. He said, endure, endure the word of exhortation. Endure this word of exhortation, which means, please accept it as valid. That's all I'm asking. How can any pastor, how can any pastor neglect to proclaim the message, persist in it, whether convenient or not, rebuke, correct, And encourage with great patience and teaching. Second Timothy four two. For by taking heed to himself and to his teaching, and by persevering in them, he will save both himself and those who hear him. Save them from what? In four sixteen of first Timothy. Well from four one, from the doctrines of demons that cause the drifting. Of the hearers, and the neglect of such a great salvation as we have in Christ Jesus, and the congregations today too, according to hebrews thirteen seventeen are urged to quote obey your leaders. I tried to find some other meaning for that word it's it's obey, and it doesn't mean you like the old shepherding group where you have to wear certain clothes and watch certain TV shows and they come into your house and all that stuff. To obey your leaders is simply to listen and give them attentiveness while they're teaching the word that they've poured their guts out to get to you. That's all. That's all it's saying. Obey your leaders by yielding to them the right of way to teach and exhort because they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. That's pretty heavy. That's a a burden to be under for your life if you're a pastor. Those who give an account. Why didn't you teach them? You taught them universal salvation. And you did well to do that, son. You taught them their security in, in me. You did well to do that, son. But why did you not exhort them? Encourage them. Rebuke, reprove, correct when necessary. Why did you not take the time to give them the kind of momentum that would pull them up out of a depressing lethargy? Why didn't you do that? And they'll have to give an account. I got no excuse. I have no excuse. My Lord and my God, I have no excuse. Paul said, I run this race as someone who's kind of afraid of being disqualified. I always used to, ever since the first grade, I would say we had a test. Mrs. Lape would give us a test. And I would say, I know I did lousy on the test. I know I flunked it. I know I got maybe a C. And then she'd say, Alan, you got an A plus. And I go, yes. But I'm going to wait until the judgment day, the judgment bar of Christ before he says what my grade is. And I'm still thinking I could flunk. Not worried about my salvation. I'm worried about being disqualified as having preached this word to others. For 40 plus 50 plus, who knows, how many years. So, congregation, obey your leaders by yielding to them the right, the way to teach and exhort because they watch over your souls as those who must give an account. Congregation, see to it that when they do give an account to the Lord about you, that they can do it with joy instead of grief. For those who refuse to heed the word of exhortation. Proverbs 5:11 and 12, not me, but Proverbs 5:11 and 12 pictures a person wasting away and we're all going to get there. The bones shrink, the flesh shrinks, we're not pumped anymore, we're wasting away, perhaps. And it pictures the person on their what we would call their deathbed. And this person says, at the end of your life, when your flesh and bones have shrunk, it says, you don't want to be saying how I hated instruction and how my heart turned away from instruction and correction. Just didn't want to hear it. Oh, I wish I hadn't hated it. I wish I hadn't rejected it now. Now, I wish I hadn't belittled it. That's not my word. That's the word of Proverbs 5, 11 and 12. So if we continue in Hebrews, and we don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together one way or another, if not here somewhere, somehow, I'm asking you to accept this word of exhortation, these times of exhortation, accept them as valid. Don't just accept them as valid, accept them as necessary and accept them as my responsibility as a pastor to deliver them to you. So thank you father for this opportunity. We take very seriously this book of Hebrews. We don't just look at it as a Bible study around a table a coffee clatch where we can discuss our favorite doctrines. This is a serving of papers to us to leave a condemned building that's slated for destruction. To leave the kind of thinkingness and livingness that ends up on a deathbed with regrets. We want to be saved from such a thing. We want others around us to be saved. From such a fate. We want to sow to the Spirit, not just so that we reap a harvest of eternal life, but so that others may give us the Spirit of the Son, who came not to be served and waited on, but to serve and wait on others and to give his life as a ransom for many. We ask this in his name.